Hi, I'm Sean Bobbitt, and you're listening to um, Cinepod. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ilya, how you doing? Hey, Ben, I'm doing okay. How about you? Very, very awesomely good. My son started preschool today. Ooh, exciting. You getting some some time back then. Yeah, a little bit. Three, three and a half hours of uh, of time. I, I didn't know what to do with myself. Take it. Take it. Be productive. You, you know I what was, to do. I was, I was extraordinarily productive. So, uh, Ilya, who is on the show today? Very talented cinematographer Sean Bobbitt is on the show today. We had a fantastic conversation, and I'm really looking forward to hearing it myself because it was it was a lot of fun. All right. Well, that's awesome. And I had an idea that I ran by you for our close focus, and it was sort of a movie series that erase parts of their IP, movie series that, that kind of go through and scrub the stuff that didn't resonate properly with audiences away and Mm. i'm bringing this up because we are not very far away from the release of the Zack snyder cut of justice league Mm. and and justice league people remember was a full movie that was released in theaters in 2017 a lot of us will remember it because there's a really weird scene where uh, superman's lip is recreated in cgi and it looks super weird um super weird and um (laughs) So apparently uh, Zack Snyder had directed the movie and had to step off of it when he had a personal tragedy. I guess his uh, his daughter committed suicide, which is horrible. And so he stepped away and Warner Brothers replaced him with someone who seems eminently qualified to make, you know, a big superhero team up movie. Joss Whedon, he had made two Avengers movies. And uh, Joss Whedon reshot and rewrote a lot of the movie. And a lot of what he did was not in what Zack Snyder had done, but I guess Zack Snyder had finished making the movie or had nearly finished making the movie. And so uh, due to fan pressure, Warner Brothers decided to release the Zack Snyder cut, which will be about four hours long. And you can see the trailer for it online now. It includes uh, at least one scene in the trailer of Jared Leto as the Joker, uh, which was definitely not in the Justice League that I saw in the theaters. I think it's interesting because this... Uh, I don't know that they're pretending that the other Justice League didn't exist. I'm sure that both versions will be out there. But it it kind of brings to mind the recent Halloween movie, which was a direct sequel to the original John Carpenter Halloween. And also Terminator Dark Fate, which was a direct sequel to T2. And in both cases, in in the case of Halloween, there, there had been like six sequels that they're just kind of pretending didn't exist actually it's like six or eight depending on whether or not you include the rob zombie reboot which he made a halloween and a halloween two um <laughs> so we're just going to pretend that, the, that none of that exists and make a direct sequel and then you know uh terminator dark fate obviously th- there had been a uh, terminator 3 rise of the machines and the uh terminator genesis like all of them uh, salvation we're gonna, yeah we're just gonna pretend that all these terminator movies just never happened and i think it's it's an interesting thing because I don't know if there is a way to feel about it to a degree. I sort of feel like, well, then you should refund me the money that I paid to see all those movies in the theater. Like if you're pretending they didn't exist, then you should pretend that I didn't pay you to watch them. 
But uh, <laughs> what are your thoughts about this? Uh, I know that fans love it when what they loved about an original idea and project, mostly movies, but it, you know, occasionally other things as well, comes back and they get all those feels again yeah. for having experienced what it was that they loved about before. You know, uh, we have Matrix Four coming out soon. Uh, I don't think they're going to pretend that Matrix Two and Three didn't exist. Exactly. If, ha- they, if they uh, made if they made a Matrix movie and they're like, we're just going to pretend that those two Matrix movies that you paid to see in the theater. They they're not real. They're not canon. Who who needs those things? Yeah, you ultimately alienate a portion of your audience who actually does really enjoy whatever it was that you put out there. But I think what it comes down to is the filmmakers must not be particular fans, despite what they say of those projects. Otherwise, they would want to weave them in in some manner to make sure that that does stay part of the canon, part of the story, part of everything else. So I think that when that's happening, it's really the filmmaker is taking a stance saying, I didn't like this. This doesn't jive well for me. I want to do it differently. I guess that's my problem with it. Like on the one hand I go, because I I believe I have seen every version of Halloween in every sequel. (laughs) And I understand that it's probably an onerous ask of a filmmaker to say like weave something into this very very dense series of movies you know that have all these different things and characters and blah 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 so maybe it is easier to just kind of wipe the slate clean and be like fuck it we're just gonna make this up anew but I I also feel like if you are the person who made the original Halloween 2 that is a pretty good movie you know it's 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 a product of its time maybe it doesn't hold up a, a thousand percent today but i like it I, I i don't care i i like it uh we're gonna pretend that didn't happen we're gonna pretend you know like all, halloween three season of the witch is almost in its own universe and, and is not a michael myers movie but all the rest of them are michael myers and i feel like it is a, a criticism i feel like it is saying you know terminator three rise in the machines and i uh, didn't exist in genesis and you know all of that um but at the same, as long as you're going it, down this path, I got a question for you. As long as you, as long as your 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 brain is spinning okay. in this direction, has anyone ever rebooted a movie after the original? And I think that this is more likely to have occurred in, in horror films. So they it, they ignored the original, then the original doesn't exist anymore. They only have the reboot, and then sequels continue on from that reboot. Sort of like if they made Little Shop of Horrors the sequel. And they ignored the fact that there was a little shop of horrors. I mean, they did remake the movie, but so they've remade it, and then it was yeah. more successful than the original, and they kept it going. And that, to me, it sounds like something that would happen in horror film land. It sounds like that's like like Dawn of the Dead, like if they made a sequel, or you know, from. Well, they did sort. Well, I I think the same company, or maybe it was the same producers, or maybe it was not. I'm not sure. But they remade Dawn of the Dead, and then they also remade Day of the Dead. Uh, without George Romero, but they're not um, exactly sequels you know, to each one, other. I mean, that's they're they're not one that's one that quasi comes to mind, and I don't know if it's really. I don't know if this qualifies. Is there's an amazing film written and directed by Dan O'Bannon of Alien mm. fame that came out in the early '80s called Return of the Living Dead. It's one of my comfort mm. food movies. I'll, I'll just watch it to you know to just relax. It's it's brilliant. It's funny. It's the best horror comedy ever made in my in my humble opinion. Ooh, better than Shaun of the Dead. I would say I would prefer it to Shaun of the Dead. I would I would watch oh, this wow. before I would. Okay. I mean, I love Shaun of the Dead. I'm not down on that. Stomping on yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I just think Return <laughs> of the Living Dead is just sort of a high watermark. 
And it's somebody as brilliant as Dan O'Bannon, like is given the opportunity to direct kind of a relatively low budget film and he makes the most of it. And it's so awesome. And they made several return of the living dead movies. And they're sort of a weird outcropping of night of the living dead because they're not direct sequels, but they kind of take place in a parallel universe, if you will. Okay. So I would say that also, I would say the Rob Zombie Halloweens 1000% are that. Um, because okay. the Rob Zombie, okay. Hall- the first Rob Zombie Halloween is a remake of the original John Carpenter Halloween. And then he mm. made a sequel to that that went off in its own extremely oddball direction. Like it's not for everyone. It's a crazy idea. Like the, the way Rob Zombie's Halloween 2 goes, it's, it's hard to describe, but it's, uh, it's odd. Um, <laughs> okay. I'm sure that I'm sure that it has happened, though. I mean, you know, also there's the the really weird um, Lucio Fulci, the Italian filmmaker, made a movie that I think was just called Zombie, but because Dawn of the Dead had been very popular in America, it was released as Zombie Two in America, uh, <laughs> even though there was no Zombie One, and it's the movie that uh, most famously has a zombie fighting a real shark. So a guy in zombie makeup. <laughs> in the water attacking an actual shark for real oh man yeah it's it's one of those scenes that you just can't turn away from uh i mean fulci was you know uh, you know an amazing filmmaker but anyway to bring it back though i'm very interested to see the uh snyder cut but i also really do kind of question the uh impetus to kind of rewrite the history of this thing that they already released and and underwhelmingly so like it didn't make as much money as they'd hoped that it would it's a little bit like there were two exorcist fours <laughs> it was like a prequel to the hmm. exorcist and i think paul schrader had directed it and the studio didn't like what had ha- what had come out so they brought in rennie harlan and rennie harlan said oh you're gonna have to shoot the whole thing over so there's two completely different versions of the same movie and they were both released hmm. to me that's that's also just kind of like a weird you know like you just kind of ask yourself how do how do these things happen yeah i don't see it going away because i feel like what hollywood wants more than anything is a sure thing sure and the the only way to get a sure thing they think is that you have uh, a huge audience that just can't wait to see anything that has something to do with it so well and it's, yeah, su- it's mean, such a an audacious thing to do too that it, it might draw people to subscribe to hbo max who weren't already on there and really all of these subscription services it's all they want. They just want to drive subscriptions. I mean, my my experience with Shutter, uh, which Shutter is my you know again like one of my favorite uh, streaming services. But when I made Video Palace for them, that was like one of their top metrics was does it drive subscriptions? And I feel like all of them are like that, and and more so now than they ever were. You know, you hear about Disney Plus surpassing or projected to surpass Netflix. It's a big deal what's going on with these services. And, uh, you know, my hope to wander way off topic is that they don't squash theatrical when we're allowed to go back to the theaters. But, you know, but they're but they were never going to release a four hour Zack Snyder cut of Justice League in theaters. And they would only do so if they put it on something like HBO Max and it was a huge runaway hit, then they might do something like that. I don't know if you've heard about this latest trend, but theaters need cash, and you can four-wall essentially a movie theater. You can you can reserve it entirely for yourself for $99 to $150, and they have many catalog titles that you can go watch there in the theater. So it could be you and 
a hundred members of your family that live under the same roof. I, I don't know whatever it is, but you control who goes into the room with you. And if you so wanted to, you can you can watch a movie there by yourself or with a few people. And if you think about it, if you had a family of like five and you went to a regular first run movie with snacks, it might easily cost you a hundred bucks. Oh, for sure. Well, we should do that. So, uh, we should do that, and we should try and watch the Snyder Cut to, in any way, try and bring this back around. I think that's a great idea if it can be done. I don't know. Uh, I don't know all the the details yet, but I just heard about people today doing it and lo- loving it, claiming that like Friday night was date night again, and they got the whole theater to themselves. Mm. Uh, to so. me, that contradicts the whole reason I want to go to a movie theater, but it's cool. <laughs> it is cool. Hey, all right. So uh, you know, Sean Bobbitt. On the show today, he uh, has a little movie out right now called Judas and the Black Messiah, big and he's done a bunch of other stuff. Yeah, big deal movie. Uh, people are already talking Oscar, and it's a great movie. It's a great cast. Uh, I think we should get to the interview. Let's do it. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. Cinematographer Sean Bobbitt is my guest today on the Cinematography Podcast. He's joining me from Sean. Where are you right now? Where Where in the world are you? Um, I'm in Caversham, England, on Cavish- the River Thames. <laughs> all right. Is that where you call home most of the time or all of the time? Well, I call it home now because I'm now sort of locked down here um, for the indefinite future. But I, I live on a boat, um, so I move uh, around England on the boat, basically, uh, whenever I can. That sounds like actually a, a really exciting and interesting interesting lifestyle, and not at all what I expected from uh, a boy from Texas. So, uh, which which I see on your IMDb is that is that true? You're 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 from Texas, and uh, yeah, and, and right. the boat the boat is actually called Lone Star Two, and it does fly <laughs> a Texan flag. Nice. So. All right. Well, uh, I don't want to spend too much time diving into into that portion of your backstory because really, uh, we're here to talk about Judas and the Black Messiah. But we'll we'll talk about some of your your other filmography as well. Give our listeners a little bit of a a, a backstory on yourself. Uh, how how do you go from uh, from Texas to England and get into this crazy business? I'll, I'll give you the short story. I, I had no intention of getting into this business. I actually, I, when I was young, I wanted to be a writer. I was very shy and very geeky. And so in my childhood, I just read and I loved reading and, and thought, you know, a writer I will be. And it didn't work out that way. Through a series of mostly misadventures, uh, I ended up as a news cameraman uh, mm. based out of England, covering the whole of, of, um, of Europe, Africa and the Middle East primarily, as well as the Far East. Did that for 10 years and it kind of drifted out of that into documentaries. I think you can, you can only do news for so long um, without dying these days. So I thought that it was a better course to try, probably move on. And, and, and I moved into documentaries and uh, made documentaries, again, based out of England, um, traveling all over the world for, for about another 10 years. And then after an awful lot of effort, managed to actually um, get out of documentaries and into drama. I, I had done it at one point a, a cinematography seminar with Billy Williams in Rockport, Maine. Mm. Uh, and that changed my life. Wow. It was at, that, at that point, I knew I wanted to be a cinematographer. I'd been a cameraman for almost 18 years shooting you know, news and documentary. But after that week with Billy, that was it. Cinematography, that's what I'm going to do. So I was very lucky. I got a break on my first film, Michael Winterbottom, uh, took me out of the world of documentaries and put me into the world of feature films. Mm. And I've not 
looked back from there. Uh, the main workshops, of course, uh, were really famous for being inspirational and educational to, to so many people. And it actually doesn't surprise me because at that time, they were sort of the preeminent training program for, for this industry. So, uh, okay, well, let's dive right into uh, Judas and the Black Messiah, which is the your, your latest uh, project that has been released. And of course, it's the story of Fred Hampton, the uh, chairman of the uh, Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party, and basically details his fall from the, the betrayal of uh, an FBI informant, uh, William O'Neill. And it is a powerful and incredible project. Can you tell our listeners how you came to be involved with it? Well, I think I, I should point out that it's not the fall of Fred Hampton, it's the assassination of Fred Hampton. Let's yeah. not sugarcoat it here. No, no. Uh, I'm glad that you, you make that distinction because, no, it, it is ab- absolutely. I, I should not have been vague. I just didn't want to put too fine a point on it for our listeners who haven't seen it or maybe not familiar with it. So, uh, yeah, okay. But it's yes, the spoiler, the assassination of Fred Hampton, which I have to admit, the history of the Black Panthers not really taught in the uh, history programs in the United States, at least not in, uh, in in high schools. So I got to say that I felt like I was coming to a lot of this information uh, for the first time, and I had only received a really, really very thin treatment ever of who the Black Panthers were sort of uh, in the, uh, the, the 60s and 70s. Yeah, I think that when I read the script, I, I felt exactly the same thing. I mean, I had a slightly better excuse than that I was living in England, um, where the Black Panthers at that time, you know, and I was, I was, what, nine, eight or nine years old. They were more presented as style icons uh, as opposed to, um, you know, revolutionary, you know, revolutionary soldiers looking for social justice um, for the Black people of America. And not having known anything about that period of history. I found it fascinating. I also found it horrific that, um, that you know, that actually nothing has happened in America in terms of, of police relations with the, the black community and um, racism in, in, in general in the United States of America. And, you know, once I spoke to Shaka King, the director, and his passion, commitment, knowledge of the history, and, you know, once once I heard him speak, I could not say no. And I didn't want to say no. I was fascinated. I wanted to know more of this story, more of this history. And also felt, well, you know, if, if I don't know that much about it, then probably most everyone else in the world doesn't know that much about it outside the black communities in the world. Um, and it was time, time to, to, to put that story out. I agree completely. And I think that uh, this is really going to be an eye opener for a lot of people who didn't live through that time period, who who aren't familiar with the the story of the Black Panthers. And I mean, it really is an intimate story, despite also being a very broad story. And I think that that's got to be a challenge to strike that balance uh, appropriately. And And it feels to me like cinematographers never get enough credit for how much their contribution actually comes to uh, whether or not the story is intimate or whether or not the story is broad and, and, and the pacing of it. Uh, um, when you After you read the script, what started going through your head as far as uh, how did you want to image this movie? How did you want to turn those words into pictures? Well, the way that I work is um, when I read the script, I try not to visualize it at all. Hmm. Because uh, for me, the, the film comes from the head of the director, 
And so it's through discussions with the director and exploration of, um, you know, other works of art, other writing, um, photographs, um, a whole gamut of, of, of different elements that the director brings in to try and explain um, how they, they wish to, to visually show or create um, a visual image for the film. It's all of those come in and get processed over time. And, you know, as, as that information's coming in, it's always being not questioned, but, but sort of just prodded to see what is the context? Um, why is this important? Trying to get all the information I possibly can um, so that information can then synthesize. Along, of course, working with the art department, in this case, um, Sam Lysenko, you know, in terms of colors and, and design, and it becomes an immersion within the subject itself. And I try and get extra reading of my own around the subject so that I'm, you know, I'm knowledgeable of the story and can actually make informed contributions to the to the development of, of the look of the film. So, you know, Shaka, when I first met him, he had over 300 stills photographs on his computer taken of Chicago in the 1960s. And he was talking me through the story as we were looking at through these photographs. And those photographs became the basis, really, for the, the sort of the look, the color palette of the film. Because um, a lot of the you know, we're black and white. At one point, I suggested we should do the film in black and white. Um, that didn't go down very well. Um, <laughs> the, the ones that were in color were all Kodachrome Ectochrome mm. and had, had a slightly faded Ectochrome look to them. So you had very high contrasts with very punchy sort of primary colors. And that became sort of the touchstone for the, the sort of first building block for the look of the film. It is a, an interesting color palette, which feels uh, reminiscent of the time. It doesn't look feel like you're watching a, a modern film so much in that the color palette and the production design all sort of play together. You've already uh, detailed a bit about the, these photographs, which sound, which sound fascinating, the, these hundreds of photographs, including black and whites. But was there an overall theme that sort of uh, emerged that uh, then became the, the visual style from the movie from those photographs? Or, or was it, did you feel it was more from the conversation and the distilling down of the vision for, for the project? Where does the, the style and uh, the qualitative uh, feel of the movie uh, come from. I know you, you're not taking credit saying that, that it's your own vision. It's a collaboration, of course, uh, from, from the director and that you, I, I think it's fascinating that you don't try to visualize anything, but I'm going to say that I think it's one of the best looking period films I've ever seen. The, the final link of the whole process of the look of the film is in the, um, the DI, the digital intermediate, uh, where the final color of the film is created. And everything I do points and leads to the DI. There are lots of, of, of things that I do on the day when we're shooting where, you know, I might leave a, a wall blank instead of putting a, a shape or a shadow on it, um, which will take 20 minutes. I'll leave it blank, full in the knowledge that when I get into the DI, I, I can change that. So the, the DI is, is the culmination of everything. And I'm very fortunate. I work with a colorist called Tom Poole of Company 3 in New York. And we've done 11 films together, I think, now. And, you know, I keep Tom abreast of everything that's going on as we're shooting. So he sees the photos. He's seen the rushes. We talk. He has an idea of, of what we're going for. And then he puts his little special sauce on it and brings it alive. And that's really where the image is, is finally created. 
Uh, yeah, I, I think that these days in, in particular, um, because so much can be done in the grade that cinematographers and you can and you can tell me if if you feel like this is uh, this is true or not with full understanding of everything, all the resources you have behind you in post-production on set, you're looking to about 90 percent of what you're trying to get to. Like, you know that that final 10% is there. I've, I've heard people say like, oh, no, I go 10% and I know I can do 90% in the grade. But I don't think that's that. I don't think that's true for most people. I think most people are like, I'm going for 90% on set. And it's like the it's like the little accent. It's that little touch. It's that little like, you know, it, it's that extra elevation. Uh, what, what's that percentage for you? How how much on set are you going for versus how much you, you think you can that that bit you can get from the grade? Uh, it varies from shot to shot. Mm. Uh, the, the most important thing for me on the set is, is well, not the most important thing, but a very crucial thing is momentum. Mm. I, I'm not going to slow things down. Um, and part of that is, is respect for the actors. Mm. Once, once they get into character and things start flowing, you don't want to break that up. And so, you know, if things change and you can't quite change them yourself in terms of, of positioning and lighting a bit of background or this hour or the other, those are the times where I'll say, okay, you know, I'm going to bite the bullet here. We're just going to go because this it's happening now. I do not want to step in and to, um, and to break the flow. So like I say, it, it's extremely variable. Of course I want a hundred percent, but that's not realistic at all because you know, the, it, it is. And also when you get into the grade, the things change in the edit. You know, scenes that you thought might be one thing emotionally are suddenly something completely different. And, and again, you know, you've got to be able to adjust to that and adapt to that and recognize the change. And so that, you know, that's the real, I, I love grading because, and the other great big thing, the, the thing that is such a great relief is your mistakes. And, you know, we all make mistakes and there's no way around that, but you can hide them in the grade. So it's like, well, hey, you know, Tom, <laughs> please save me here. You know, I've fucked up. And, um, you know, so it, it, it's a very, very creative part um, of the whole visual process. I do want to uh, jump back into, uh, I mean, Steve McQueen, I'm a big fan of, of Small Axe uh, that he did recently, and really a, a lot of his work and, and your collaborations together. Really uh, an incredible voice out there in, in the world right now. Can you talk a little bit then about the follow-up collaboration, I think, to Hunger, which was Shame? Or unless there was something in between that I'm missing, but uh, but Shame is a, is a really, really visual movie and I think continues Maybe it's uh, maybe it's partly your aesthetic, or maybe Steve McQueen's aesthetic, but of very long takes, takes that might be uncomfortably long, takes that you're you're ready you're ready for something to happen, and maybe it's going to happen, and then you're not sure, and then you're like, boy, I am glad I'm looking at this because I'm seeing more right now. But can you can you talk about where that sort of uh, aesthetic might come from? Is that is that a collaboration? Is that from working together? Is that something that's fully formed in his brain? What where where does like uh, I mean, shame is it's a lot of things. And actually, I'm not even sure here at the end that if I if I really enjoy the movie, but I think it is one of the most beautiful movies I've ever seen. It's like, I mean, really, really great stuff. And at the same time, so naturalistic, like I, I have there's so much 
darkness and so much silhouette and so much like I don't know if you have any lights out on the street when you were doing some of the stuff that you were doing and I think that's a testament because if you did have them I don't see where that's coming from and and that's that's to me it's like that that's a remarkable achievement and uh and and worth seeing the movie uh, alone for the cinematography there's not too many movies out there I say that like you know even if this is just uh even if you don't get into the story it's just a visual feast and bonanza shame, shame is one of those movies it's it, it's stunning and the aesthetic and style of uh, sound which I, I feel like seeing shame after hunger you can tell you're looking at the same creative team but it's an entirely different context and I, and I wonder if you could you could talk just a little bit about how how shame came to be what you were hoping to do with that and if if you got there in the end if your goals were achieved well you know Steve McQueen is is a unique artist and I wouldn't begin to try and imagine what is in his head because it is a very very complex place and a wonderful place but uh, you know he's also a fantastic collaborator and an immense inspiration. And, you know, it's always such a pleasure to work with Steve. We've worked together for so long that, you know, we don't really talk that much at all on the set because hopefully we've, we've sorted it all out beforehand. But it's also, you know, he's absolutely honest. If he doesn't like something, he says it. And, you know, I don't take offense. It's like, okay, great. Well, let's, let's change it. But he's always keen to inspire experimentation. And, you know, the, you were talking about the long takes. We first really came across those in Hunger. There is the, the famous, um, you know, 16 and a half minute take. Um, but, if you, <laughs> um, but that was based on an, on an ideological concept that um, if you simply hold the frame, and it actually comes from one of Steve's artworks as well, which is a, a photograph um, taken from above and behind a person and the person has a bald head and there is there's this huge scar going all the way around um, the head and there's no explanation ever given from it the the photograph is is projected the audience are in a cinema a small cinema and you're watching and a voice comes on and the voice tells the story of someone who accidentally shoots his cousin and so you're hearing this story coming along and all you have to watch is the head. And your brain starts to do things. It starts, you start to think that it's slowly zooming in. And it's not. It starts to think, you start to notice things. You think, oh, what's that added? But it's not. And from that, you've got the, you know, the, the power of an image that you then project yourself into. And that was the idea of the, of the long take is that the audience is there. They have those words washing over them, uh, and it's fantastic performances. And 99% of people swear that there's a slow track in, <laughs> but there isn't. Yeah. And, and we took that idea, and we, we applied it also to some of the acts of violence, which are long, extended, single-take handheld. And because there's not an edit, the audience are not reminded that it's a film. Mm. You know, subconsciously, whenever there's a cut, the brain is, is reinforced. It's like, oh, it's a film. It can let you off at that point. If there's no cut, the audience can't be let off. Hopefully, they're drawn in deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And the emotion of the scene um, escalates. 
so that's that's sort of the genesis of the of the idea of the extended takes but there's another aspect to it as well and that is the um Steve is a, a, an amazing cineast. He's seen every film ever made hmm. and remembers them in immense detail. And in the older films, you know, there, there is that classic, you know, you just hold the frame and the action happens in front of it. And it's not fast, fast, close-up, reverse, blah, blah, coverage. It is very considered frames within which the action happens. Um, and that for both Steve and myself, is is what we desire to do. I, I think that's got to ultimately be much more rewarding when when you have that that perfect framing, that perfect shot, the versus uh, oh we can figure it out by shot shot reverse cut cut. Have a nice day. So there's got to be a a, a a satisfaction, a personal achievement that that comes from finding that finding that frame. There is, and I think if you look at Judas and the Black Messiah, Shaka King embraced that absolutely as well. You know, uh, I, I don't allow people to say coverage on set. We don't do coverage. You know, we do a series of very carefully crafted and decided upon images. And, and when people start to fall into coverage, that's just a lack of um, a lack of preparation and a lack of understanding of the um, of the subject. Bravo. I, I don't usually, I, I mean, uh, uh, bravo. <laughs> I don't really know what, what else to say. Um, undoubtedly, you've worked in both styles. I think everyone has worked in coverage style and, and you understand how you have to get it done. Anyway, we don't have a lot of time left here. And there's so much uh, in your filmography, of course, we, we didn't get to get into. And I really want to, to talk a little bit more about shame. But I appreciate the, the conversation of the, the genesis of where the long take comes from and everything else. But I think that uh, because we, we may be short on time, We've only got a couple minutes left. If there was, it was one thing that you could sort of say about the visual process of, of that movie and, and how that the certain look of that movie in particular came to be, uh, I, I'd, I'd love that. I'd love that. That would be a good place for us first to, to come out on. And then maybe you could come back on the show in the future and we could talk about some of the, some of your other work. And uh, okay. no, I, I can talk forever about this stuff. I love it. Um, so shame. One of the main concepts of shame is that um, people in New York, they live their lives up off the ground. Mm. And it's it's all in buildings looking out over things and that they only go to the ground for rather sordid forays. But most of their lives is suspended in space. And Steve was fascinated with that idea. So the, the big thing about shame is the locations. Mm. All the key locations are up in the air. And it was finding that world, you know, where people are are oddly suspended. Most people don't get that in the film at all. It's not important, but it was very important to Steve and therefore very important to me that we find the exact locations to help us give that subconscious idea. And it was also, it was very important. Steve lived there for a while. He was a student at, uh, at NYU. I think it was NYU. Um, but, you know, New York is unique. It has a unique flavor to it. And he really wanted to try and capture that. And so we had, you know, there were rules. The the you can't have any tourist attractions featured, but they can be in deep deep background. Hmm. You know, for example, the and and many people don't realize this, but the apartment that um, Michael Fassbender lives yeah. in, the view we see out the window is the Empire State Building. Hmm. I, I would you not know, have gotten that. No, it's, no, it, it, no, it doesn't. No one, feel... no one gets it because it doesn't matter. But to us, it was really important. And, and that gave us great pleasure and great joy to be able to do that. And so that, that was kind of the aesthetic, but it was also 
you know, I, I appreciate, you know, the, the comment you made about exteriors and whether it was lit. Um, it's always lit. And, and a lot of people existing lights, ask me that practical. question. Yes. <laughs> well, but it's existing lights and practicals, but it's always augmented. There mm. is always other lights. There are decisions that have been made. Mm, sure, sure. About oh, the location. Oh, oh. Um, but, but I'm very grateful that no one notices that because that is my job. You know, if I have succeeded in that, then I've done well. So thank you for that. That was a great compliment. Congratulations, you, you've succeeded. And I think this is a really wonderful place for, for us to leave it, actually, because I, th I think you're right. Part of the craft of anyone operating a camera uh, is often to be invisible, is often to not draw attention to themselves and only to document what's playing out in front of them. And of course, there's all kinds of ways to, to draw attention to yourself. The overt and overused uh, slow motion 360 degree uh, Steadicam, which uh, I never need to ever see again. But uh, I will tell you that your work in that movie in particular was really fantastic and I hope that uh, I hope that maybe we can dive into it on another time. I know that we're out of time right now and uh, I just want to say thank you for being on the show. Well, thank you for having me and I'm, I'd be happy to come back whenever you have time. Hey, that was Sean Bobbitt. Sean, thank you so much for coming on the show. That was so much fun. I'm, uh, I'm glad you could do it, and I look forward to having you back. And now, short ends. So, Ilya, I can't wait to... You already know what my short end is, so I want to know what your short end is. Okay, well, this is kind of fun. Um, Sony is coming out with a brand new camera, and I actually think that this camera is a big deal. It's a sub-$4,000 full-frame digital cinema camera called the FX3. Uh, this falls well, this falls in the same line uh, family of other FX cameras that uh, all have very similar looks to their flagship camera, the Sony Venice. This is sort of like their less expensive, less high-end cinema system, the FX series. And the FX3 is by far the smallest, by far the most affordable. And I have to say, in some ways, I, I might love it the best because um, really? we got it we got it for a while and we got to shoot with it and I did a bunch of tests and it's not exactly the same as the other two in the family and it's certainly not the same as a Venice, but it's definitely above the A7S three, which is sort of a the, the alpha stills camera that also has some really great uh, low light functions and a lot of people have already adopted to sort of movie making. This is like a dedicated movie making machine, although for mm. shits and grins, they left in all the still functions too. And it's about the same size as that still camera. It's actually technically a little smaller, but they gave it professional audio and a whole bunch of other cool features like having the ability to output a clean signal, full resolution signal from your HDMI and still use the flip out monitor on the screen. That's a real typical thing you see on consumer level products like, like the Alpha series where uh, you want video to come out the screen turns off and that just becomes really yeah. really impractical and uh, this camera doesn't do that and this camera has an image that really does look like the bigger more expensive cameras it's going to by the time you hear this it's going to be available for pre-order at hot rod cameras it's going to be 38.99 or something like that so $3,900 which uh, oh, wow. for a point of reference is $300 I believe more than the a7s3 but it also gives you the professional XLR removable top handle which gives you pro level audio that is removable from this and it fits on gimbals and it's a full frame cinema camera with with uh, up to 120 frames per second and here's some alphabet soup for you 4 2 10 bit 
all iframe recording, which is uh, incredibly high quality uh, compressed recording nonetheless, but uh, very high quality. And so we did some torture testing and actually we're posting a video to the Hot Rod Cameras uh, YouTube channel uh, where you'll actually get to see me, mostly wearing a mask, but you'll see me in there talking about and using this new camera. And for people out there who have been looking at the other sub $6,000 cameras out there, which I'd say is sort of like this new emerging strata for digital cinema cameras, like highly competent, very capable stuff that's coming in just under 6000 This is way under that. You could take that $2,000, put it towards a Sony lens that features autofocus and stabilization. And I have to tell you, I have never been one to use the words autofocus and cinema together. Having been a first AC for, for 10 years of my life, I can tell you that this is the best autofocus I've ever seen for cinema, period. Better than multi, you know, $100,000 systems that, that I've seen out there in use. This little tiny camera has it built in and it's so accurate. It's scary and it does a really good job. You have to, the first AC's job is going to change a little. Uh, it's not going to be that you don't need an AC anymore. It's just that the AC is going to be the one responsible for making sure autofocus works the way it's supposed to. And in some regards, their job will get a little bit easier. In other regards, harder. But uh, but yeah, this this little camera Really amazing. Well, when we yeah, when you talk about autofocus on these cameras too, I I, I you know dock shooters yeah. are gonna dock shooters. If you can tr- oh yeah, if you can trust the autofocus on a full frame sensor so that you can have shallow depth of field and also have reliable autofocus. I mean that to me the reason autofocus gets shit on all the time is because it's not reliable. We were doing autofocus at twelve thousand eight hundred ISO with you know almost no light. And it's just amazing. It's it's really impressive. We we tried all can, kinds can of. Can I ask you a, a, yeah. a wonky ass question about the camera? Sure. How's how's the rolling shutter on it? It's pretty good. It's actually it's 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 quite good. It's definitely on par with other cameras that are out there. It's not the best I've ever seen. It's not the worst I've ever seen. Uh, for a full frame camera, though, it's it's quite good. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I still <laughs> I still have my old uh, Canon 5D Mark II and. You know, when you, when you pan slightly to the left, the whole image uh, turns to jello. I, I love that camera to death, but oh boy. I'm going to encourage you, if you've ever thought about selling it, do that today. Do it today. Don't wait a week. Don't wait wait tomorrow. It is never going to be worth more money than it is today. So, uh, so yes, if, if, you, if you still want to hold on to it for some reason, that's great. You're getting your money's it's worth. It's good for stills. Yeah, it's, it's great for stills. It's a great stills camera. But if you thought that you might get $10 out of it or $100 or $500 or whatever it might be, today's the day. Don't wait. Don't wait another moment. That, that, that should, should go. So eBay, Facebook Marketplace, whatever you I'll, would, would. I'll check it out. Okay. <laughs> All right, so Ben, uh, we we talked a little bit about your uh, your short end, but uh, tell tell our audience what 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 is uh, well, what's yours? It's a docu series that's on HBO called Alan v. Farrow, and uh, it brings up it's like Ford v. Ferrari. It is it is like Ford v. Ferrari. If <laughs> I don't even want to go there, <laughs> if if Ferrari had tried to get Ford put in jail for uh, you know molesting a child. Um, it's <laughs> so the similarities end at the V. That's the really v, is what yeah, you're saying. Yeah, yeah, there's, yeah. there's no connection yeah. between Oof, far fewer <laughs> car chases, but uh, just some serious uh, stomach churning descriptions of horrible behavior. And uh, you know, I fall in so many different ways on on this kind of thing because you know the rumors have been going on about Woody Allen since I think 1992. 
and there was a whole legal case and he was he was let go i and and so you know when we talk about the people who who we've you know quote unquote canceled i don't have a better word for it um mm. you know the bill cosby's your harvey weinstein's you know people who it's like yeah we're just not gonna we're never gonna see them in an entertainment setting again we never have to like you know look at them then there are people like kevin spacey who keep trying to insinuate themselves back into our lives, but are probably gone. And then there's Woody Allen, who is troubling because, um, you know, and I was reading an article today, I think it was in Vanity Fair, about this uh, woman who uh, was like a 16-year-old girl when he was having an affair with her for eight years, so starting when she was 16. And, wow. uh, he, and at the time, he was 41, and you know how many movies did he make that were about an old an older man kind of leching on a younger woman several and then i can't think of any i'm sorry <laughs> kidding <laughs> and i mean the whole thing the whole documentary is kind of about him uh, supposedly molesting his adopted daughter dylan farrow and dylan farrow is in the documentary and and it's made by kirby dick who's uh you know an extraordinary Famous, yeah 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 and it's uh, it's really well put together. And, you know, you see Dylan Farrow and she, you know, seems extraordinarily credible. And uh, it brings up so many questions because, I mean, they've only released one episode and there are three more to go. But there's always that thought of like, after we learn these terrible things about these people, do we watch the Cosby show anymore? Do we have any issues with any Miramax properties watching, watching those things do, you know, like with Kevin Spacey and all the stuff that came out with him, you know, one of my favorite movies, as you know, is the usual suspects. Another one of my favorite movies that I maybe have never talked to you about is LA confidential. He's in both of those. Also Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, the, you know, like he's been in so many amazing movies. Do we just shun all that material and in the case of Woody Allen I really you know it's like I, I'm not the world's biggest Woody Allen fan but I mean the guy's made like 40 movies he makes a movie a year and he's worked with some amazing talents and he has made some some outrageously great movies but I gotta say that it's like my stomach turns at the thought of watching his stuff which I know is the intention of this documentary frankly and I don't know. What is your opinion about that stuff? Like when when we find out truly awful things about people who have made, uh, you know, the stuff that entertains us, the Roman Polanskis, do you revisit their work? It's really tough for me, of course, because, too, I, I love some of the, the same stuff that you do. And, uh, you know, I got to say, I actually really enjoy some of Roman Polanski's movies. But, uh, you know, I have no love for the artist the auteur behind uh some of these mm -hmm. these things uh so i want to say in my brain uh i i like to try to divorce the person from the work but i know in some instances it's actually it's impossible and i think that i'm okay with that i'm okay now with with people telling me that they cannot divorce the person from the work and that they can't watch their work and i uh, i get it i understand it i think that this is an individual choice. It's an individual who can, can you separate the work and let that creative work stand on its own? I, I'd like to hope that some of this stuff really does because I, I, I don't want to minimize the efforts of thousands of people, thousands of craftspeople who went into making some of this stuff. Yeah, agreed. And, uh, 
and just the sheer amount of effort. I mean, l- let me tell you, there's there's plenty of people who I'm sure were scumbags who before this industry decided to, to cancel them, got away with their scumbaggedness and we never knew it and we enjoyed those movies all the same. Now sure. that that I think that the the world has decided that they are not going to tolerate shit heels. And I had my own experience with one today of someone who just absolutely <laughs> refused to to wear a mask, which like you don't think in retail in California that's going to be a thing, but yep, it happens. It, it still happens. There are people, uh, I, I don't see how I can ever help this person again because it's like they were really awful about it and there's, you know, 60 seconds of inconvenience would have meant that uh, everything would have been fine, uh, assuming that it was actually inconvenient to wear a mask. So um, anyway, I'm sorry. This is my own. uh, I'll get off of my soapbox now. But I think that you have to decide for yourself whether or not you can divorce the work from the individual. And I think sometimes you can and maybe sometimes you can't. And I think either way, it's going to be fine because uh, if you can and you think the work is good on its own and it has its own merits, that's wonderful. If you can't do it, then I get that, too. And it's like, yep, you, you know, you don't want to support stuff that might financially benefit the those creeps. I think there's plenty of creeps who got our financial support. We just never knew about it before. And I mean, uh, yes. I'm glad I'm glad that it's changing. So. I, I agree. And I, and I think that, you know, we could I, I could certainly easily name th- three to five creeps who have never gotten their due. But everybody in Hollywood knows who they are. When, when it comes to somebody like Roman Polanski, for instance, who uh, fled the country on, uh, again, a child molestation charge, basically, fled the country in, I believe, the late 70s, hasn't been back, got to keep making movies. Part of my brain goes, while he lives, I have a hard time doing anything that would benefit him any money that he would make off of any of of me buying a movie ticket or me buying a blu-ray or you know even me watching his thing on on one of the streaming services because somehow that's going to benefit him while he lives and i do think that like you know you like again with roman polanski he got all kinds of accolades and oscars for the pianist starring adrian brody if roman polanski had been behind bars uh, he wouldn't have made the pianist, but somebody else would have made a movie that would have gotten all those accolades that year. And you know, I sort of feel like if Harvey Weinstein hadn't been doing what he was doing, somebody movies would have gotten made. You know, like it's not like w- the world was relying on him to do that. And we wouldn't have had any movies if it wasn't for Harvey exactly. Weinstein. <laughs> I mean, like you know, you go like, okay, well, you know, we maybe we wouldn't have Quentin Tarantino. You know, which would be a real loss. And as a producer, I, 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 I like I don't. I gotta I don't I believe that he would have found a way. I don't say I'm not going to watch a Quentin Tarantino movie because Harvey Weinstein. I mean, I guess we all have our own uh, point at which, you know, we all have our own pain threshold. And, you know, I was uh, the usual suspects popped on uh, cable a, a year or so ago. And I was like, I wanted to see I wanted to watch it just to gauge my own comfort level while watching it. And I, I guess I sort of settled that. Roman Polanski is an auteur and this is like him doing, you know, he's in control of all this stuff and he's, he's uh, abusing it. And I feel like when it comes to watching something like LA confidential, the usual suspects with Kevin Spacey, it's like, 
this is Kevin Spacey doing a job and LA Confidential has amazing performances by Guy Pierce and Russell Crowe and Danny DeVito, like a laundry list of amazing actors in that. And Kevin Spacey happens to be one of them. And the same with Glenn Gary and the same with Usual Suspects. And it was easier for me to kind of say, okay, this is a, a terrible person doing doing their job on the job versus Bill Cosby doing stand-up comedy where it's like he's, you know, he's the writer, he's the performer, he's it, it's all his work. Or even something like The Cosby Show where it's like it's his brainchild, he's benefiting from every, you know, every eyeball is benefiting him. And, you know, with Woody Allen, I think I'm going to watch the rest of the documentary, obviously, and I'm not knee-jerk taking anybody's point of view, but, you know, even the stuff Woody Allen himself said is so damning and and creepy that it just it's it, it's really hard i think i think the way they're setting it up i can see where they're kind of going is it's like that's the inevitable conclusion we're going to end at well it sounds powerful uh i need something to watch tonight so maybe i'll maybe i'll start it too yeah go for it i, I mean i think it's it's really excellent anyway so i think that wraps us up Ilya, who do we need to thank tonight let's thank kezala tracci first even though he's not listening he's uh, you probably know, I, not I, listening I, you know, you know what's actually quite fun is that uh, Alana realized when going through the site recently that like 70 of 100 podcast episodes that we have on the official site, Kay's last name is misspelled. Oops. So, whoopsie. <laughs> but, you know, it's not like he was looking anyway. Clearly, this proves that he really hasn't been looking because, oh, uh, because his name was misspelled. I don't think it's misspelled anymore. I think that Alana spent an hour or so, and she went through and she fixed every single one of them. So, but, uh, but yes, it turns out Kay's Kay's had a name had a misspelling. We're, we're very sorry, Kay's. Well, and I think he's, that's, he's not listening. He, he can't hear you. That segues us into thanking Alana Cody and her amazing uh, producing, and uh, we have some amazing interviews that she worked her ass off to get uh, coming up very soon. Yeah, yes, indeed. You're going to have some fun. We got some great people lined up. Oh yeah, already did have some fun. God damn it. <laughs> and Sean Bobbitt was so much fun too. I, I'm, I, I really, uh, you, you ought to be jealous about that one. That, that was a good one. Uh, definitely, he did, he definitely. Did, yeah, he did the whole Zoom call from his boat, which was awesome. Ooh, she. Yeah. Well, Lloyd should do a Zoom call from his boat. Anyway, yeah, I think uh, we, could, we could do a whole episode of cinematographers on boats. So. <laughs> <laughs> we'll come up with a, a fun catchphrase. <laughs> um, <laughs> DPs oh, on the on the high seas or something. Oh, you got it. You already you yeah, went there. Huh? I, sure. I was thinking I was thinking about something more pirate themed, but that that's good too. Okay, good. <laughs> uh, let's thank Ben Katz, who's uh, struggling to make us not sound like fools. Maybe so. he even cut that last joke out. I don't know. Maybe he left it he, in. Yeah, it, it. You know, if uh, if there was a joke about pirates, then he definitely definitely cut it out. <laughs> anyway well that's great well uh uh we will yeah sorry i just completely shit the bed there that's great well <laughs> what well, ellie could you get us out of here ben Cass is gonna leave that in now because since since you <laughs> yeah i deserve that uh, all right so uh thanks for listening thanks for watching i, what, I know what i'm we... having a hard time getting us out of here and we do this yeah, every you know, week we should do mention though that we are on YouTube now too as the Cinepod. So uh, the Cinematography Podcast is there, and we have some sort of uh, video episodes of our earliest episodes moving forward. And oh, wow. you can you can you can watch some of our old classics right now, working our, our way up to, uh, to to present day. Ben Katz is busy; he's got a lot of stuff going on. Busiest man in all of Burbank. 
<laughs> pretty damn busy. All right. So uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you next week or we'll hear you or you'll hear us next week on the cinematography. Or we'll podcast. see you because we're outside your window right now and we're watching <laughs> like Michael Myers. <laughs> do, 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 do. <laughs> this has been the cinematography podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.